You're listening to a message from Oaks Church, Brooklyn. Our longing is to see heaven come to earth in our city. For more information on our church and community, please visit oaksbk.church. Our teaching text today is um, 1 Kings 19, 3 through 12. Elijah was afraid and ran for his life. When he came to Beersheba in Judah, he left his servant there, while he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness. He came to a broom bush, sat down under it, and prayed that he might die. I've had enough, Lord, he said. Take my life. I'm no better than my ancestors. Then he lay down under the bush and fell asleep. All at once, an angel touched him and said, get up and eat. He looked around, and there by his head was some bread baked over hot coals and a jar of water. He ate and drank and then lay down again. The angel of the Lord came back a second time and touched him and said, get up and eat, for the journey is too much for you. So he got up and ate and drank. Strengthened by that food, he traveled 40 days and 40 nights until he reached Horeb, the mountain of God. There he went into a cave and spent the night. And the word of the Lord came to him. What are you doing here, Elijah? He replied, I have been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, torn down your altars, and put your prophets to death with the sword. I am the only one left, and now they're trying to kill me too. The Lord said, go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord, and the Lord is about to pass by. Then a great and powerful wind tore the mountains apart and shattered the rocks before the Lord. The Lord is not in the wind. After the wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. After the earthquake earthquake came a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. After the fire came a gentle whisper. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, church. Hi. Hi. (laughs) It's nice to see you all this morning. What a Sunday so far. Amazing. Um, My name is Gemma. If we haven't met, I'm one of the pastors here. Um, Ryan mentioned that we're in a season of Lent. This is the the 40-day period up until Easter. And very often in the Christian liturgical calendar, the Lenten period is a time to really focus on prayer and fasting as we remember the 40-day period that Jesus spent fasting and praying in the wilderness. And today we're going to start a new teaching series, which is going to take us right up until Palm Sunday, which is the Sunday right before Easter. And it is entitled prayer over troubled waters. And every time I say it, I feel like I should burst into Simon and Garfunkel. I'm not going to. Um, (laughs) But if you have been around our church for any length of time, hopefully you know that this church is built on a foundation of prayer. We believe that God has called us to be a people of prayer. And just as our lives go through seasons of great joy and great struggle and a whole lot of ordinariness in between, If we are to be a people of prayer, then our life of prayer must be able to endure and even thrive in all of the seasons of life. St. Ignatius of Loyola described the ebb and flow of the spiritual life with the words consolation and desolation. In spiritual consolation, we feel connected to God. We feel a, a sense of closeness. And usually during those times, practices like worship and prayer and reading scripture are relatively easy and life-giving. 
But inevitably, we will find ourselves in seasons of spiritual desolation, when we feel disconnected from God, when our life with God um, feels labored and dry. And obviously, this is nuanced. It's very possible to be going through something deeply painful, um, a season which on paper looks like absolute desolation, and yet be thriving in our relationship with God and feel this sense of consolation. And likewise, it is possible to be living our best life and yet be in a season where we feel totally disconnected from God and our deepest sense of self. In our teaching text today, we just heard about a time of desolation in the life of the prophet Elijah. But before we talk about this season of desolation, I think it's really important to give some context and talk about the season of consolation that preceded it in the previous chapter. So this text that we just heard follows a moment of real victory in the life of the prophet Elijah, a mountaintop experience, if you will, um, when he challenged the prophets of Baal, a foreign god, to a contest on Mount Carmel. Now, this contest was to decide which of their gods was all-powerful, which of their gods was, in fact, the true god. It involved them each putting a bull as an offering on their altar of worship and calling on their God to consume the sacrifice with fire. The prophets of Baal agreed and they spent all day calling on their God, Baal, to come down in fire. They danced around the altar shouting and screaming, slashing themselves with, with swords and spears and nothing happened. In contrast, Elijah remade the altar of the Lord, which had been destroyed by the prophets of Baal, placed the bull on the altar, dug a trench around the altar, poured four large jugs of water over the sacrifice and over the wood, repeated that two more times, and then asked God to come and consume the sacrifice, praying that through this, the hearts of the people would be turned back to God. And the fire of God falls upon the altar, burns up the sacrifice, the wood, the stones, the soil, even licks up the water in the trench. And the people fall prostrate before the Lord, crying out, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. Now, I've got to say that if I'd been Elijah, I think I might have lived off the good of that moment for quite some time. I mean, he's just restored an entire nation back to right relationship with God. But our teaching text tells us that immediately following this episode, Elijah flees. He receives a death threat from Jezebel, who was the wife of King Ahab, who ruled the kingdom of Israel. They worshiped Baal, the foreign god that Elijah was prophesying against. And as a result of this threat, Elijah runs. Now you might say, well, that seems like a perfectly normal response in getting a death threat. But the truth is that Elijah had previously stood up to Jezebel and Ahab, and actually his fleeing is quite uncharacteristic. So what's going on there? He could have easily fled to the king of Judah, where he would have been safe with King Jehoshaphat, but instead he fled even farther south to Beersheba. And he appeared to be intending to go farther. The fact that he left his servant behind there is an indication that he was planning to leave Israel altogether. But we're told that he walked for a day into the wilderness, came to a brim bush in the desert, sat down under it, and prayed that he would die. Now surely this must be some sort of comfort to us that the prophet Elijah, 
had a moment that revealed the utter frailty and vulnerability of his humanity. The man who could call down fire from heaven, who could declare that it wouldn't rain in the land for three and a half years, and it didn't, is the same man who sat under this brim bush and said, I'm done, I am out. How often have you found yourself expressing the same sentiment? I am overwhelmed. Life is too much. I have had enough. This week alone, I have lost track of the number of times I've said, Lord, this is too hard. And maybe they're even minor things. It's another child vomiting or another paper to write for school with too little margin or more bad news from family at home. And sometimes it just feels like life is too much. During this teaching series, we wanna explore what it looks like to remain committed to a life of prayer in the midst of struggle. Jesus did not promise us that life would be sunshine and roses. In fact, he said, in this life you will have trouble. But take heart, I have overcome the world. Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father in all of his humanity and divinity right now, ruling the whole world. And yet, we live between his ascension and his second coming when he will fully and finally establish his kingdom on earth. And until that day comes, we will still have trouble. So what does it look like to pray in the midst of trouble? How can prayer meet us in times of loss and disorientation, in pain and confusion? And how can prayer help us move forward? Most of us, if we're honest, probably feel like there is a standard of prayer that we don't measure up to when life is good, let alone when life is hard. I've lost track of the number of times I've sat across from people in this community who've said something along the lines of, I'm not very good at praying, or I don't pray right. Ronald Rollheiser says the prayer, like love, is easy only in its beginnings and in maturity. And in between, it is difficult. It requires fidelity, daily making the choice to incarnate the commitment that we've made. For me, prayer is very simply my life lived in, with, and through God. It is communion and communication. And oftentimes we think of prayer as something that we do once or maybe twice a day in an official designated quiet time. And of course, there will always be times of planned formal prayer. But the wider invitation is that our whole life would become prayer. That all of the activities and circumstances of our lives, the good, the bad, and the ugly, would be opportunities for us to be with Jesus. The framework that we're gonna use for exploring prayer over troubled waters is similar to the process that you'd undergo if you find yourself to be physically lost. If we were lost in the woods, for example, we would first have to locate ourselves. We'd have to stop and recognize that we are in fact lost. We then need to orient ourselves by finding things outside of ourselves that are stable and create a landmark for us. We then need to step out in the direction that we need to go and be sustained for the journey home. And in relation to prayer during this series, we're gonna be asking questions like, how can prayer show me where I am? How can prayer show me where God is? How can prayer help me as I obey? How can prayer sustain me for the journey? 
And today I want to focus on this first step, which we will call location. Um, when I first started um, thinking about this sermon, I immediately thought of the TV show that I remember binge watching in my early to mid-twenties about the survivors of Oceanic Flight A15. Um, I also thought it would be cool to throw out the question, when do you recall being lost and what did you do? And then it dawned on me, the average age of our community, and that in this time in history, it is so rarely the case that we are actually physically lost. The dictionary, the dictionary definition of lost is to be unable to find one's way or not knowing one's whereabouts. But we live with a map of the world in our pocket. And not only a map, but step-by-step -step instructions to prevent us from ever getting lost. Um, I remember when I spent the summer in Calcutta, um, the only way I could find out anything that I didn't know was to go to an internet cafe. Anybody remember those? Um, and the electricity was out almost every time I went, so it wasn't much help to me. And for the two years that we lived in LA, um, I didn't uh, have a smartphone. And if you've ever been to LA, you will know that, um, you know, it is very, lots of freeways, lots of traffic. It's generally a wild time. Um, so I obviously didn't know my way around very well, having just gotten off the boat, as they say. Um, and in addition to that, I was driving on the opposite side of the road, opposite side of the car from what I was used to. Um, but before leaving the house, no matter where I had to go, I would have to plan my route. And I would either write out my instructions, because we didn't own a printer, or I did have an iPad, so I would take screen grabs of like the important places. And then I would just have the iPad next to me on the passenger seat, should things get hairy, which they, they did a lot. And I actually factored in time for getting lost, because it was very often something that I did. And probably you have some memories like that. And we kind of look back and chuckle at how rudimentary that was, now that we're all so technologically advanced. We just type in an address and hit start. I mean, when was the last time you added extra time to your commute for the probability of getting lost? I'm going to hazard a guess and say probably never. There is currently a lot of scientific research going on about the negative effects that GPS has on our brains. Prior to GPS, any kind of wayfinding required planning and preparation. It required thinking. We had to consult maps, maybe even memorize parts of the route. And today, with the help of the maps in our pocket, there is no need to think. But our overall sense of place suffers as a result. There are structures in our brain, keep me right, Dr. Liz, like the hippocampus, that are dedicated to complex pathfinding tasks, none of which we are having to flex or activate when we open an app and get a step-by-step -step guide. Now, why do I say this? I think that in a spiritual sense, there are parallels. We want to be efficient and productive, and we don't like trouble that slows us down and inconveniences us. We live in a consumer society where we have become accustomed to getting what we want, how we want it, when we want it. And even in the church, rather than learning to feed ourselves, sometimes we have expected to be spoon-fed. We want the instructions and we want to be able to hit start. And yet when we find ourselves lost and spiritually disoriented and there aren't any step-by-step -step instructions that we can plug in and play, do we know what to do? Do we know how to flex those spiritual muscles in order to navigate unfamiliar territory? 
Recently, I read these words by Mike Cosper. A spirituality that doesn't teach us to pray in our darkest hours or doesn't teach us to listen to God's voice through scripture is going to leave us starving and searching for something more. We want to be a mature people who can identify quickly when we're wandering off course and know how to orient ourselves to God so that we can walk in the way of life and freedom and hope. You're probably really familiar with this quote, um, not all who wander are lost. Anyone? We love these sorts of quotes. We eat them up, we buy them printed on tote bags. Um, But I wonder if sometimes we take these sorts of quotes out of context and receive them as permission to live an unconfronted life. When J.R.R. Tolkien writes these words, he writes them as part of a poem and part of a larger story. And whilst it's true that some of those who wander, like Frodo and Gandalf and Aragorn, who the poem is about, are not lost, this is true because they wander whilst also being tethered to a purpose, to a truth, a reality that is ancient and deep. All that is gold does not glitter. Not all who wander are lost. The old that is strong does not wither. Deep roots are not reached by the frost. He is not saying that all those who wander are not lost. The truth is that many who wander are completely untethered and have no idea if their life is actually leading them home to God in their deepest sense of self. It's very possible for us to keep wandering simply because we're scared to stop and admit that perhaps we're not where we want to be. It's really easy to keep ourselves moving, recycling the same painful narratives, simply because we're scared to be still, in case we find that we're actually strangers in our own lives. But until we are willing to stop, we will never clearly locate where we are. Through the story of Elijah, I believe that we're given three invitations that help us to locate ourselves in trouble. And they are not novel, they are ancient forms of prayer. Stillness, solitude, and silence. So let's start with stillness. Elijah has been on the move, doing amazing things, being very zealous for the Lord. He told God that twice, so I think that's really important to him. He's literally been running. Verse 46 of chapter 18 tells us, the power of the Lord came on Elijah and tucking his cloak into his belt, he ran ahead of Ahab, who was riding in a chariot, all the way to Jezreel. Verse three of chapter 19 says that he ran for his life. When he collapses in a heap and expresses that he wants to die, perhaps this is burnout talking, perhaps this death threat has been the last straw, Perhaps it's the physical exhaustion of the journey, maybe a combination of it all. We don't know exactly what was going on for the prophet Elijah, but what we do know is that he's utterly come to the end of himself. He physically, emotionally, spiritually cannot keep going, and his exhaustion forces him to stop moving, and he lies down and falls asleep. Sometimes I think we are also scared to stop moving because deep down, We don't really believe that we are loved simply for our most raw and honest selves. Without the performance and the polished exterior. But how does God meet Elijah 
in the place of stopping? How does God meet Elijah in this place of brutal honesty and rawness and weakness? Does God condemn him or punish him or reprimand him for not being good enough or strong enough or discerning enough? We're told that the angel of the Lord touches him and tells him to get up and eat. When Elijah looks, there's bread baking over the coals and a jar of water to drink, and he eats and he drinks, and then he is invited to go to sleep once more. A second time, the angel comes and invites him to eat and drink, saying, the journey is too much for you. For me, this echoes the words of Jesus. Come to me, all of you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. It is a very sad symptom of our time and even in my own life, I notice this, that very often we will only stop and be still when the journey is too much for us, when we're forced to stop out of illness or burnout, when in fact the invitation from Jesus is to learn his rhythm of rest so that we can live out of our being and not out of our doing. When Elijah comes to the end of himself, when he admits his weakness and pain before the Lord, when he finally stops moving and consents to stillness, He's met with provision for his most basic human needs, food, water, sleep. He's met with compassion and empathy. God met him where he was and gave him what he needed in order to be able to move forward. Elijah didn't necessarily get answers to his questions or, or a solution to his problem, but he did get what he needed to take a first step. Scripture tells us, be still and know that I am God. Stillness in prayer teaches us surrender, relinquishing control and busyness and productivity, taking our hands off the universe. Stillness is ultimately an expression of trust. It's a posture of vulnerability and submission. As we consent to becoming still, we're creating space for God to occupy and to move. And in the stillness, we can also more fully discern the appropriate next step. We're told that Elijah, strengthened by the provision of God, got up and started walking for 40 days and nights until he reached Mount Horeb, the mountain of God. In scripture, 40 is a typical number of completion. Um, Jesus spent 40 days in the wilderness when he was tempted by Satan. Moses spent 40 days on Mount Sinai, receiving the words of the covenant. Interestingly, Mount Horeb is Mount Sinai. This is the same mountain where Moses received the 10 commandments. So it's a place of covenant and commissioning. And in many ways, this journey that Elijah sets out on is like a pilgrimage. And so I think this is the invitation to solitude, an invitation to be alone, to decompress from all the people and expectations and opinions and give his full attention to himself and to God and to where that will lead him. In a city like New York, we are surrounded by people all of the time. It's one of the things that I found hardest when I first moved here. And solitude requires significant intentionality. Solitude is sometimes referred to as intentional or creative withdrawal. True solitude, I think, always beckons us back to community, but it teaches us to be present to ourselves and present to God and ultimately to others as well. In solitude, we give our full attention to God 
and our own souls. Um, during a particularly painful time of loss in our journey towards having a family, um, I was sitting with God one day in the silence and I sensed him saying to me, Gemma, when Louise died, which was some time before that, when Louise died, you utterly withdrew from me. In this season of loss, would you withdraw to me? Mike Cosper also says this, we retreat into solitude, not out of fear, but out of sober preparation for life in a fallen, disenchanted world. We retreat and find what we're tempted to look for everywhere else. God asks Elijah, what are you doing here, Elijah? I think our ears should always prick up when an all-knowing God asks a human a question um, that he already knows the answer to. In fact, he asks Elijah this same question twice, so it must also be important to God. God asks questions because questions invite conversation. Questions invite relationship. And God is always, always, always inviting us into deeper relationship. Where are you? What are you doing? What do you want me to do for you? These are the sorts of questions we hear our God ask in scripture. God's questions invite our honesty, our vulnerability, intimacy. I'm lost. I don't know where I am or where I'm going. I'm not the person I thought I was. I'm not living the life I actually want to be living. Help me. God invites Elijah to go out from the cave onto the mountaintop and wait for the presence of the Lord. And the text tells us that there was a powerful wind, but God was not in the wind. After the wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. After the earthquake came a fire, God was not in the fire. And after the fire came a gentle whisper. The storm, the earthquake, the fire, they all recall the original appearance of God to the people at Mount Sinai where Moses received the covenant. Fire and storm were characteristic ways that God would reveal his presence. Indeed, in the chapter right before, this is how Elijah had experienced the power and glory of God. In fire, fire came down and consumed the sacrifice, but God was not in the fire this time. God doesn't always show up in the ways that he has done before in our lives. And if we expect him to, we will often miss him. Some translations refer to the gentle whisper as the sound of sheer silence. God was inviting Elijah to know him in a new way. In silence, we are forced to face ourselves fully, to allow all that is inside of us to rise to the surface and make itself known. Ganilla Norris says this, when we make room for silence, we make room for ourselves. Silence invites the unknown, the untamed, the wild, the shy, the unfathomable, that which rarely has a chance to surface within us. Silence also teaches us to listen. In the church, I think we can be very good at, at feeling the presence of God in the noise and in the crowd. We love to fill empty space. If we're not feeling connected to God through this music, we can just switch the playlist. If we're not connected with God through scripture, we can stick on another podcast. If we're not hearing from God in prayer ourselves, we can just let someone else listen for us. We can really easily hide from God with resources that are supposed to help us connect to God. 
What if into all the noise and all the distraction that we fill our lives with, God is inviting us to stop, to stand still and be quiet, to listen for the eternal, ancient, unchanging truths of God's character and kingdom and allow ourselves to be found again by this reality. In silence, when everything is stripped back, we learn to listen for the still, small voice of God. St. John of the Cross said, silence is God's first language. If silence is God's native tongue, then that is a language we must learn if we want to pursue a deep and intimate relationship with him. I started with the question, how does prayer help me to know where I am? And I wanna get practical for a few minutes because prayer is practice. Stillness, solitude, and silence, they, they don't come naturally to most of us. We have to practice them until they become a place of rest for us. When we look at the life of Jesus, there is a very real rhythm of public ministry and private withdrawal to be with God. Let us withdraw to a lonely place to pray. In order for stillness, solitude, and silence to really help us in prayer during trouble, they must be sought out of discipline, not just out of desperation. There are a few practices that I, I wanna highlight. They're actually on the, the Good Way website. Um, if you're not familiar with that, it's um, thegoodway.live, or live, live sounds better. Um, the first is called a spiritual location exercise, which sounds weird, but it's very much what we're talking about today. This is listed under the Sabbath practice, and it can really help us to work through each of the areas of our lives systematically and pay attention to where we actually are and to honestly name before God where we are and invite him to come and give us his invitation. The second is very simply to encourage us to begin incorporating a daily practice of stillness, solitude, and silence during this Lent season. Maybe start with two minutes. If you're doing the fasting on Thursday and the, there's a liturgy that comes with that, after the Lord's Prayer, there is a period of silence. Don't skip over that. Breath prayer is a very helpful practice in staying anchored to Christ during that time. And you'll find a bunch of resources on the site just to help guide you into that. But I would encourage you to start with a couple of minutes See if you can build it to five or 10 or 20. See what starts to happen in your life as you cultivate this discipline of stillness and solitude and silence. And lastly, I would encourage you to pray the Psalms. Um, when I was in a significant season of grief um, and, and crisis of faith, really, uh, the only books of the Bible I could read were Job and the Psalms. Uh, I just find it really hard to connect with God in the rest of scripture, which had always been a lifeline for me. But in the Psalms, we find every human emotion that it is possible to, to have. And I would encourage you to, to take some Psalms that you could even um, read regularly or memorize parts of by heart so that you can speak those out and bring yourself to a place of hope and reorientation around God when we feel disorientated by life. 
What might it look like for us to be a people who can know God's presence in stillness, solitude, and silence as much as we feel his presence in the midst of productivity and community and noise? If we practice withdrawing to be with Jesus in our everyday life, then when trouble comes, it will be a natural place for us to retreat to in order to locate ourselves, orient ourselves around Christ, discern a way forward, and be nourished and sustained by Christ for the journey ahead. I want to close by, by just reading these beautiful words about prayer by Padraig Tuma. I just want to encourage you just to close your eyes. Prayer is a small fire lit to keep cold hands warm. Prayer is a practice that flourishes with faith and doubt. Prayer is asking and prayer is sitting. Prayer is the breath. Prayer is not an answer always because not all questions can be answered. Prayer can be a rhythm that helps us make sense in times of senselessness, not offering solutions, but speaking to and from the, the mystery of humanity. Prayer is words and shape and art around desperation and delight and disappointment and desire. No prayer is hollow, whether it is answered in one way or the silent way. Prayer sings and it swears. So let us pray. I wonder, would you stand with me? I'm going to invite the, the band to, to come on back up, but you, you won't need to play just yet, but come on back up and join me. As part of our response today, I just want us to feel an invitation to pray in whatever way feels most honest. And as would be fitting at the end of a, a sermon on, on stillness and solitude and silence, we're actually going to just hold uh, a moment of silence together. Sometimes silence is actually either easier to hold in community than it is on our own. And as we have this time of silence, I want to encourage you to put your body in whatever posture feels appropriate to you. Maybe that is sitting like Elijah did under the broom tree. Maybe it's kneeling. Maybe it is standing. Maybe it's lying prostrate on the floor saying, the Lord, he is God. We will step over you. Don't worry. But I want to encourage us, whatever feels like a posture that would express your willingness to consent to the work of stillness and silence and solitude, and I, want, I want to encourage you to occupy that posture. And whatever you do, let's try to actually keep our bodies still. And in this silence, I want to just invite us to locate ourselves, to honestly name before God where we are. This is not about absence, it's about presence. It's not an empty space. It is a space that is, that is pregnant with the fullness of God and his activity. And band, I want to encourage you to join in with us as, this as well. So let us just hold a moment of silence together as a community. Holy Spirit, would you come and meet us in the silent place? Just as you met Elijah, 
It wasn't in the earthquake or the wind or the fire. It was in the gentle whisper. And so God, we trust that you are still moving in the silence. You're still moving in the stillness. And as we as your people just wait on you in the silence, would you come and meet with us? Come Holy Spirit.